It takes some special talents to run your own kitchen while also hosting a podcast and working as a food writer. But that's what Soleil Ho has managed to do. She's the co-host of the podcast Racist Sandwich and also recently moved from Portland, Oregon to become the chef of her own restaurant, Bonito Kitchen, in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. I'm Soleil Ho. I am a chef and a writer and a podcast host. I host The Racist Sandwich, which is a podcast on food and race, class and gender. So for people that don't know your work, can you tell us about your relationship to food? Like, what do you remember eating a lot of growing up? And how did you decide to become a chef? Sure. Um, So I've spent, gosh, um, probably eight years as a food writer off and on. And I even had a food blog before it was like a big thing back in like 2007, I want to say. I've always been sort of obsessed with documenting food and just talking about it and processing it. I think it's just because that's just the way my family interacts with each other. We relate to each other based on what we ate and what we're going to eat. And so it's always been something I've been thinking about. But I started working in restaurants when I was in college, I think in, gosh, (laughs) 2007, 2006. I worked at a fancy-ish restaurant in Grinnell, Iowa, where I went to school. And it was lovely. I was a server, and it was my first introduction into the restaurant industry, and it was very cool. And I guess over the years, I just moved more towards kitchens because I have a lot of anxiety issues, (laughs) and so talking to people is really hard. So um, in the kitchen, you don't have to talk to anyone, really, except for the guy next to you. So you just mentioned that food is the way that your family interacts with each other. That's, That's really interesting. Like, you talk about what you have eaten and what you will eat. Can you explore that a little bit more? Like, how is food an inroad to having conversations that are otherwise kind of tricky to have? Oh, well, I think there's just, for us, it's easier to talk about the body than it is to talk about the mind. I think the mind is such a private place for my family. We're Vietnamese people, and emotions and processing emotions is really hard. I don't know if it's just us or if it's just... And I've heard this a lot from other, like, Southeast Asian people. It's just, you know, we get really emotional, but we can't actually process it intellectually. (laughs) So, uh, you know, instead of asking how you're feeling, you know, we just ask, like, did you eat yet? And then we talk about, oh, yeah, I have, I made rice. I'm going to start cooking in, like, 20 minutes, so just chill. And that's basically our family conversations. So tell me about the restaurant you run now. It's in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, right? Yes, it is called Bonito Kitchen. It is a small plates Asian restaurant. I do a lot of, I guess, the the restaurant and the menu is a reaction to sort of coming up in the restaurant industry, working in kitchens where (laughs) I would always have to season for white people. And what that means is like use less spice, use less fish sauce, um, those are my major infractions over the years. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, at this restaurant, I don't compromise. I make it as pungent and as spicy as I want. And sometimes that results in dishes getting sent back. But, I mean, I don't I don't uh, pull any punches. That's just the way I do it. It's my style. That's really interesting. Like, we talk a lot about pop culture coming through the white gaze, like movies, music, books written with white audiences in mind as the consumers. And what you're saying is the same thing happens with food. Like you're literally having to change 
what you cook for white tastes. Right. I think, I mean, so much of how we grow up just as individuals and as humans, right, we have a palate and the palate is nurtured. Um, you know, it's something that is transmitted to you by your family or the people around you. And, you know, I grew up eating a lot of fish sauce and eating spicy food. And that is just, you know, my tolerance is built up. And that's the flavor that I go to when I want to be comforted. And, you know, it's pleasurable to me. And so I want to transmit that feeling to the people who eat my food. So what's it been like living and cooking in Puerto Vallarta? I know you wrote an article. I know you wrote an article recently for the um, Women of Color travel website, On She Goes, about the Asian restaurants and snacks of Puerto Vallarta. So do you see a lot of multiculturalism and Asian influence show up in Puerto Vallarta's food or not? Um, a little bit. There's some things that have sort of um, transferred over. So a lot of ceviche tostada places, they have... Um, they usually have like an Asian-esque tostada, which usually involves like tuna and sesame, um, <laughs> maybe some like wasabi mayonnaise on a tostada. They like that kind of stuff. And because um, there's a lot of bleed over between the fresh fish, like raw fish cuisine of Japan and then the like raw fish cuisine of Puerto Vallarta, which is a, a port town. So people eat a lot of raw fish. Um, it's kind of like what you see in Peru with Peruvian Japanese cuisine as well. Um, I guess the difference is there are not a lot of Japanese people here. Their descendants aren't really here. And that has a lot to do with the way Mexico reacted to World War II. Um, they did a lot of really similar relocation efforts, forced relocation, as the United States did after Pearl Harbor. So they moved a lot of the Japanese Mexicans into the um, inner portion of the country, away from the coasts. And so it's almost like their cuisine is a sort of um, the legacy. It, it's a trace of their presence, but they're not actually here. How do you feel like living in Mexico has changed your own relationship to food? How, do you think your food tastes have changed as you're eating a lot more like carnitas and tostadas? <laughs> I'm definitely eating a lot more raw shrimp than I used to. Agua chile is probably my favorite raw fish dish, and you would never find it in the United States for the most part. It's raw shrimp, like straight up raw shrimp, with a lot of either serrano or jalapeno pepper, lime. It's really limey. Pepper, salt, cucumber, sometimes um, cilantro, and then you just eat it on a tostada, it's so good. And the texture of raw shrimp, when it's um, drenched in lime juice, it's like creamy. It's really awesome. You've written for Bitch before about cultural appropriation and food. You read your essay, Craving the Other, on the trendiness of pho on Popaganda three years ago. For you deep cut listeners, you might remember that. But you just wrote a new piece on the topic for On She Goes. And it's a guide to avoiding cultural appropriation when interacting with cultures other than your own. So I'm curious, Soleil, like, has your thinking on this topic changed in the years since you've been writing about it? Like, what feels new between the time you wrote Craving the Other to now? So for this new piece on On She Goes, I was really wrestling with how to tackle cultural appropriation in a fresh way, because to be honest, I'm sick of being asked about it. Um, and I think partially it's my fault for writing Craving the Other and doing the work that I do for Racist Sandwich. We get a lot of questions about cultural appropriation 
especially from white folks, in interviews that we've done um, about, you know, can I make curry or can I eat burritos without being, you know, history's greatest monster? Which is like, I get it. I get the impulse. Obviously, you want to keep enjoying the things you enjoy. And if part of your identity is really steeped in being a foodie and knowing food and enjoying the pleasures of food, I get why critiquing food or just sort of critiquing the way we approach food from cultures that are not our own can feel like a stab in the heart. You know, I get it because you want to be a good person, but you also want to enjoy what you're accustomed to enjoying. So the piece that I came up with was more just, it was very positive, which is very different different from what I usually do. I'm actually a very cynical, dark person, usually, <laughs> when it comes to like politics. Um, but I wanted to create a piece where people could read it and just have it be like a how-to guide on like, you know, best case scenario. Like, how do I approach the customs of other cultures in a respectful, compassionate way? So that was sort of my answer to all of those questions. And I guess from the beginning, when I, I think I originally wrote Craving the Other in 2013, right? It was a while ago. It feels like a lifetime ago. But I guess what's changed since then is that I've gotten a better sense of the macro scale of things. Why does it matter on like a large scale? And sort of marrying it to more sort of Marxist materialistic um, critique and centering it more in you know the money aspect and the labor aspect and resources rather than sort of an individualistic like you know you're choosing this and this is what's wrong you know let's let's talk about that that's interesting like how does cultural appropriation work with our economy in the food industry to perpetuate greater wealth inequality oh yeah um so you know there's this concept called the racial wealth gap and what that means is you know um white families tend to make about 15 times more than black and Latino families in America. What that means is for every dollar that a black person would make here, um, a white person would make $15 on average. And that is the result of just centuries, obviously, right? Of slavery, um, limiting just the wealth um, accretion of black and Latino folks, taking people's resources, burning down their towns, um, keeping black veterans out of the GI Bill, for instance. So all of those factors built up to this huge wealth gap. So that's sort of the base. And um, cultural appropriation comes in where, you know, you have white folks taking sort of the cultural markers of non-white folks, um, making a profit off of them. That's the important part. Um, just monetizing, commodifying. And the problem is when you do that within a society that has such a severe racial wealth gap, like that's when, that's when it gets really fucked up <laughs> because you're profiting off of people who cannot even profit off of their own customs and off of their own like products of their culture. Um, so it just exacerbates that gap so much because they can't even use what they have to accumulate wealth and make a life for themselves. Does that make sense? Yeah, and that responds to a criticism that I see pop up all the time in the comments on writing about food where people say like, 
Like, what's the big deal? This isn't about race. This isn't about politics. This is not some kind of statement. It's just a soup or a new banh mi restaurant. And you know what? I think that pushback would be valid if we lived in a society where everyone could open a business or profit off of, you know, the product of their labor equally. But we don't. Yeah, that's not our reality. So one line that stood out for me from the piece you wrote about food and cultural appropriation for the travel website On She Goes was about how traveling and eating new foods can be an essential way to broaden your understanding of the world and to interact with a wider and more diverse community. Like, it's not bad to get out of your comfort zone and try new things and go to new places. And that's a really important message. You wrote, I'll just read this because you wrote it really well. It can be difficult to adjust to another culture's standards of etiquette because it often requires owning your ignorance and asking for help. But by showing respect and courtesy to other people's cultures, you open up countless fulfilling interactions with the people around you. So can you spell out how this advice applies in the context of food? Like, in what ways can and should people recognize their own ignorance and be respectful around food? So, um, there's a lot of sort of... <laughs> there's, there's a lot of stuff here. So, I'm just going to use examples from the restaurant where I um, work. I do a lot of, you know, food that is new for this area. And we definitely get a very stark divide between the sorts of customers who come in. There's customers who have never interacted with any of this type of food before, and they ask questions. They're really excited. They're confused, but they, you know, they want to try everything. Those are my favorite. I love them. And, you know, I'm always willing to answer any stupid question. I don't care because I know that they're eager to learn. And this restaurant is a learning experience for them. And, you know, you see them like fumbling with chopsticks, for instance. And it's just like, I love them. They're great. And then we have customers who come in and something that I serve is not quite familiar to them. And they they make a face, you know, or they're just like, what is this? Like, what the hell is this? Or they'll compare it to something that they had somewhere (laughs) else, like far, far away. And they'll say, this isn't right. This is completely like messed up and gross. Um, That's the difference to me. You know, there's humility and, you know, humility can be playful in a sense. You can joke about it and just be like, you know, I've never seen, why do you eat with sticks? I don't know. I'm going to try it. It's going to be fun. (laughs) And the lack of it is just you're not going to have a good time. You know, the restaurant isn't going to meet your needs. And you know that. And it's just like, if you don't come to something new with a willingness to like accept it, or at least like tackle it on its own terms, then it's just, I don't know why you even go out. (laughs) I don't think you're learning anything. I don't think you're actually connecting with anyone in that way. I'm curious about what what kinds of questions do you get that you're happy to answer? And what's an example of a question that really rubs you the wrong way? Well, let's see. I'm trying to think of like a good good one that I've gotten lately. Oh, yeah. So I got a question about pho, for instance, because we serve pho at our restaurant. And they are asking like, why do we, you know, um, have all of these sort of garnishes on the side. So pho comes with like bean sprouts, basil, lime, jalapeno. And it was really interesting, actually. And I guess the the thing I'm most sick of answering is actually just, um, I don't know, I think a lot of people just like ask me like, what are you? 
you know? And I get it. It's different because in Vallarta, there's not as many Asians. And so it's it's kind of weird to be here. <laughs> um, but people still ask, like, what are you? Like, where are you from? And I'll just say, like, New York City. And they're like, oh, well, you know, you still get that sort of level of, like, microaggressive, like, interrogation. So I'm, I, I tire of that. Yeah, that does that does sound really tiring. So... Just one last question for you, and then I'll let you get back to all the work you have to do today for the restaurant. Are you feeling stressed out about cooking, by the way, this week, or is it okay? Well, next week I have to, I decided to make every day, um, make a ramen special for every day. And so I have to, I have to get that stuff done. <laughs> You're like, why? I just want to make do more to work myself? for myself. Yeah, I love myself. That's why I'm in the restaurant industry, because I have a very high sense of self-worth. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so just one last question and then you can start making ramen. So when you're cooking or writing about a cuisine that you are not very familiar with, what do you try to keep in mind to make sure that you're treating a cuisine with respect? Like, how do you try to be respectful in your own approach? Well, um, for instance, I'm making ramen next week at work and I prepared by calling up friends who work at ramen shops. I have this former chef who's this Japanese woman and I ask her questions like all the time. And I ask like, is this crazy? Is this ridiculous? And she'll be like, yes, don't do that. <laughs> and I listen to her, you know, just because I want to make sure I'm not making something really stupid because I'm sure she's tried it before. And I respect that. I respect her experience. Um, and there's all sorts of like I read books and I, you know, I check on like blogs of people who have made that before, who are from that culture, just to see like what they've tried and what they're doing. I just interact with them, you know, in a direct, as direct as possible sort of way so that I can get a lot of input. And it's different from the idea of like the chef as like the solitary genius artist, right? Because I think a lot of people kind of put out this image where their recipes and their dishes just come from God, you know, just come from the sky and they don't ask anyone for help. But I ask for help. I actively solicit opinions and, you know, suggestions. And that's just the way I do it because I think that's more fun. And I think it feels more real because it means that I have a community that is looking out for me and trying to help me make the best food I can. Alejo, everyone. Definitely check out the podcast she co-hosts, Racist Sandwich. I love it. Korsha Wilson